Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Happy New Year, Matt. Happy New Year, Sherry. You know what I'd like to do? What would you like to do? <laughs> I'd like to start with a listener question. A listener question to start the new year. Great idea. Yes. This you. This listener question has nothing to do with the new year, but I'm glad that we're addressing this one for sure. And just a reminder to all of our listeners, if you would like to submit a listener question, not that Sherry and I are psychologists or therapists, it won't be professional advice, but if you want to know how we handled your situation or what our thoughts are, please send us an email at matt at soberandunashamed.com and maybe we'll have a chance to read your listener question uh, on an upcoming podcast. I'm excited about this one because I don't have any direct experience with it as in I didn't do this as an alcoholic, but I do have direct experience with it like the loved one of an alcoholic has. Ooh, intriguing, mm. huh? Pretty exciting. Just read the mm. stupid question, Matt. <laughs> and I quote... My thoughts exactly. I quote our listener. I feel as if I have a bit of a unique situation or maybe just one that nobody talks about. And she really emphasized the nobody. My alcoholic husband is a bedwetter, but only when he drinks alcohol. So it's not medically related. Never ever has he peed in his sleep in his adult life without the help of alcohol? It's a great question. I responded to this caller directly in addition to addressing the question on the air because I immediately wanted her to know that that's not a unique or or rare situation. That's a fairly common situation having uh, bedwetting in relation to alcohol. And in fact, the story that I can relate to, Sherry, is when I was in college, I had a roommate that you and I both know who shall on this podcast remain nameless, who did this from time to time. It wasn't every time he drank because God knows we drank every single day or almost every single day. So it wasn't every time he drank, but if he drank a lot, he would do this. And for one year, he and I were roommates even, and... I had a lofted bed and he had a first story bed or a, you know, ground floor bed. And so his bed during the daytime served as a couch. We had a, another piece of crap, dirty, you know, smoke infested couch, but we also had his bed. And so when we would hang out, hang out with other guys uh, that lived in the house with us, watch TV, whatever, it was fair, you know, fair game to sit on his bed or to sit on the couch and he had a tendency, especially like if we would go hard on a Saturday night and then get up at the crack of noon on Sunday to watch NFL football, for instance, would be a good example. He would move out of his bed and onto the couch. And so when I would climb out of my loft, I would automatically sit on his bed and he was a bedwetter. So sometimes I would sit there for five minutes, ten minutes before I, I moved a little. And when I would move, I would realize, oh my God, I'm wet. What the hell is going on? And then he would laugh and laugh and cackle 
and thought it was the funniest thing ever. And he would love it when he got somebody that wasn't his roommate. Do you did did he ever get you? I know that you oh, no. were was... friends with him as well. No, no, he... I don't think I ever went to a room of his. Yeah, I think he and I were roommates before you and I met. Oh yeah, yeah. And then, but we still were friends with him. You never yeah. just went to hang out in his room yeah. and sit on. Now his bed. I'm like wondering every time he like stayed at our house when we were young adults. Whew. Yeah, I don't. Did think... I like miss that? I don't think you can miss a bed being okay. wet. It's not like he washed his own sheets. Yeah. No. I mean, at our house, he didn't. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, um, yeah, really common. Um, We, you know, and and not just my own personal, you know, one friend experience, but we, it is something that we hear from time to time. And as I told this particular listener directly, the solution is simple, but it's not easy. The simple solution is don't drink. Stop drinking. And I say that kind of glibly and matter-of-factly, but sobriety has brought so many benefits to my life that at the stage that I'm in now, the place I am now, I can't even imagine tolerating a dysfunction like that in order to, to drink alcohol, which is a toxic poison, and why would I want to do that to begin with anyway? Mm-hmm. So it's just... And so I know I come off kind of arrogant and and I have a different perspective now than I had back when I was drinking. If I put myself in the mind of someone who is still drinking, there was a lot of shame involved with being an active alcoholic. There were things that I said that I never would have said sober. There are things that I did that I never would have done sober. There was just bad behavior and not even bad behavior, just sloppy, intoxicated, irresponsible or... You know, just, you just are an oaf, you know? And so all of that adds up to bring a lot of shame on me. I would think that having a, a problem with incontinence in, in while sleeping would add to the things that brought shame and embarrassment and make you just, you know, make it a, another case for the reason to stop. Um... But it definitely, it, it just speaks to the power of the addiction, right? I mean, if whether you're acting like an oaf, saying things you shouldn't, spending too much money, getting DUIs, being verbally abusive to your loved ones, or wetting the bed, all of these things are just completely unacceptable things that we learn to tolerate and accept and normalize because the pull of that substance is just so strong. What's your reaction to this, Sherry? <clears throat> well, I think it's just, to me, it seems sort of scary that that the person is so intoxicated or the their brain is so taken over by the alcohol that rousing themselves to go to the restroom isn't even something that's, you know, an option, I guess. Not even an option. They just aren't even aware. Now, I know little kids do it, you know, because... They're potty training or, you know, overnight sleeping. And I know one of our children used to be scared to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And I know I was a scared kid to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and you would doze off. But, I mean, we instantly, like, myself, if I had wet my bed when I was little, I remember I instantly woke up. And our child who was scared to go to the bathroom instantly woke up and we took care of the situation. 
But for someone to, like, sleep through that, that's just makes me sort of sad that they're so intoxicated. That's interesting. I don't think... I, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think that that's necessarily the case that the bedwetting is directly corresponding to the level of intoxication. I think people who do this, it's just just a side effect of alcoholism that affects some people and doesn't others. I don't think it necessarily equates to, like... My blood alcohol level was 0.4. You know, I was nearly dead, and that's why I couldn't get out of bed to pee. I think, I think it's you know, it's it's like how some people are impacted by blackouts really quickly. I was one of them. I would black out and not recollect the next day things that happened, and I didn't even seem that drunk. Right? I mean, you you saw that happen to me lots of times. Yeah. I could pass out in public. I passed out many times at concerts at loud events with lots of people around and that's hugely embarrassing and the kind of thing that you're like oh my god how incredibly drunk is this person that he can pass out in public i wasn't necessarily incredibly drunk that was just a negative side effect that alcohol had on me that it doesn't necessarily have on other people i think that's the case here too i don't think it means that you're just nearly dead blasted because you're peeing the bed also just what alcohol does to the person. Yeah. I had mentioned that too, that it, you know, that's their side effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's so diabolical. I know you get irritated by that word, but it behaves differently with different people. Some people drink for 30 years heavily and their liver survives that somehow. I watched a CNN documentary, Lisa Ling, This Is Life episode yesterday that was released about 10 days ago or so, two weeks ago, about alcohol. It was filmed here in Denver. And they had a specialist who deals with liver transplants that was talking about the number of 20-year-olds that he sees now that need liver transplants. So it one of the really crazy things about alcohol is how it impacts so many of us in such different ways. It's almost like our bodies are screaming for help and screaming that this is not okay but the screams come in different forms. Sometimes bedwetting, sometimes blacking out. You know, we talked to lots of people who one of the reasons that they continue to drink for a very long time is because they are not angry drunks. I was sometimes an angry drunk, sometimes a happy drunk, sometimes a goofy drunk. Um, so, But often I was an angry drunk. Some people aren't. Some people are just jovial. Some people get really quiet. So... That's what makes diagnosing alcoholism so difficult. And when people start comparing to each other, I mean, it would be really easy to say, oh, I never wet the bed, so I'm not as bad as this person, so I'm going to keep going. Now I can black out after about four drinks and not remember things that I've said and say offensive things, but if I can draw some false equivalence or some false comparison and say, my blacking out isn't as bad as this person's bedwetting. Well, if I'm blacking out and saying nasty things to you, you might think it's worse than bedwetting. Mm-hmm. It's just fat. The whole thing's fascinating to me, obviously, or I wouldn't still be talking about it on this podcast. But the bottom line for the listener is this is not rare. Yes. Does nobody talk about it? Yes. Oh, it's stigmatized. It's like everything alcohol related, only this one probably worse because it's, Somehow more embarrassing. I don't know how you can get more embarrassing than saying stupid things when you're drunk, but 
But this is the kind of thing that nobody talks about. But it is common. And so if you are not the person who sent this question in and you are someone who has incontinence issues when drinking or you live with someone who has incontinence issues when drinking, the solution, like I said, it's simple. I didn't say it was easy. I'm not saying sobriety is easy, but it's a simple it's a simple answer. And we wish you all the luck getting there. Today we want to talk about relapsing after big events. Because guess what? Sherry, I think the holidays count as big events. Yes. And we are just coming through that. I relapsed many times. You know, I, I've talked a lot about how I had a 10-year period that I can, would consider my active alcoholism. And during that 10-year period, there were stints of sobriety and lots of times with active drinking. And the end of my stints of sobriety often came not... I mean, sometimes it came in anticipation of a big event. Sometimes it came during a big event. And sometimes the end of my sobriety came following a big event, following by a few days. One example that I can think of that I've talked and written a lot about is the Rockies game, the Major League Baseball game that I attended with my next door neighbor who he and his buddies had tickets and one of his buddies fell out last minute. That was about, I don't know, a week or two sober and they invited me to join them. And I said, sure, I'm tough. I'm newly sober, but uh, I can handle anything because I'm strong and smart and good and all this stuff that I was, in fact, not. (laughs) And I went with them and they were big time drinkers, which I knew. I had drank with them lots of times in the past and they got really loaded and I had offered to be the designated driver, which just a little side note, that is a terrible idea. If you're in early sobriety, you should always be responsible for you and yourself only, your own ride. You should have your own car. You shouldn't be relying on anybody else and you shouldn't let anyone else rely on you. I mean, I guess like Sherry, you and I would go places and you're my spouse. If I needed to leave though, you were willing to leave early if we went somewhere. But being a designated driver early in sobriety is a terrible, terrible idea. I ended up... never the reverse. Never being the drinker when someone else is the designated driver? No, if, if I wanted to leave early, you, the drinker, would not allow the designated driver When I was car, still drinking. When you were still drinking. Heck no, I was an asshole. <coughs> and that's kind of where you were caught in that situation. Yeah, they wanted to keep going. In fact, they wanted me to take them someplace after the Rockies game, which I did. I, I left them there, though they had to find a cab home later but the point is I had this terrible experience thinking I was tough and recognizing how weak I was and how miserable I was the entire time and I didn't drink that night but I drank a few days later the the build-up of the just disgrace and shame and why can't I drink like those guys and then the doubts right oh they were all loaded so what if I get loaded they said mean things so what if I say mean things All of that just compiled, and I drank a few days later. There were several Halloweens. It's too fuzzy, right? It's too far in the past. But I definitely, you know, I'm six years sober this time around. I've been sober for more than six Halloweens. There were a few times where I guess my drinking built up before Halloween to the point where it got really bad, and I decided I was going to be sober, and I was sober on Halloween. And same thing. I would see people handing out candy that had a... Uh, bourbon on the rocks, you know, in their glass. And I would see younger people partying 
on Halloween night. And so I would make it through and I would do a good job as a father taking my kids around. But then a few days later, I would relapse and be off to the races again. So there were many times where after big events, I drank. And then the the one that sticks in my mind the most, the kind of most painful, was the time I, I played in an adult men's league soccer on a team. And for many years of playing, I drank after the games with the boys. And then when I was newly sober at one point, I decided not to go to the bar with them and I was leaving and I made some excuse. I've got some things I've got to do at home. And one of the, one of my teammates, in fact, the one that is an ordained minister and has counselor training, this is why it was so hurtful, said, what do you got to run off to an AA meeting, Matt? Teasing me. And, uh, that hurt really, really bad. And so I didn't drink that night. I didn't drink the next day, but I drank within a few days that just stung me so badly. So that is all a picture painted as a backdrop for coming off the holiday period, whether you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or Festivus for the rest of us, or you don't celebrate any of that. It, we've also come through New Year's. This episode is published on January uh, 2nd. So we've just come off of New Year's. And it's, it's, you know, you, you get through those difficult times and you're like, there, I'm in the clear. I made it. Uh, all of the family gatherings where Uncle Bob or, you know, Aunt Jenny or whatever, my sister-in-law or whoever, the, the, the distant people, the close people, they were all lushes and they were drinking too much. And I witnessed all of that and it was tense and it was stressful and it was triggering, but I didn't drink. I made it. And then here you are, early January, and there's no family gatherings coming up. There's nothing to celebrate. If you live in most parts of the United States, most parts of the Northern Hemisphere, you are staring at a couple of two, three months of cold and gray and dark, short days and long nights with not much to look forward to. And so Staying sober in this period is really, really difficult, especially when you've come off something and you've made it through. Mm-hmm. Does it tempt you to drink, Sherry, to be <laughs> in January? No, nope. Good for you. Common emotions. Let's talk. This this is something that we will have in common. Let's talk about common emotions coming off the holidays that we hear from lots of people and that we've experienced ourselves. You think of things. I think of things that I could have done differently experiences. Uh, maybe, you know, we're home with our kids a lot more. We've got two in college, they're home. Our high school and middle school kids are both around a lot more than they are when they're off at school for hours and hours a day. So we're all around each other. And I think of things that I could have said differently, situations I could have handled. I could have had more patience. I could have said something better than the thing that I chose to say. We've talked many times on the podcast about how I was brought up in a situation, a family situation where the males were teased a lot. I was teased a lot as a kid. And so there's a lot of teasing that goes on in my family, in, in our, you know, with our kids. I try to temper that. So sometimes I, I can't help it. You know, our kids lay it out on a platter for me and I can't help but take the shot. And then I regret it later. So lots of 
things that could have been done differently, regrets, little regrets like that. Do you have any of that, Sherry? Do you experience that? I do, but it's. I think it's more like hands-on stuff. Like, oh, we could have played a game at this time instead of us, as we're, you know, the world is turning to going on their phones and looking at social media a yeah. lot. Like, we could have, we could have played a family game. Because our youngest, he loves, like, board games and stuff. Now, unfortunately, he has the hottest temper, so no one <laughs> wants to play with him. He, he only likes board games when he's winning. Yes, he only likes board games when he's winning. And also, as the youngest, and doesn't argue. he often isn't because he doesn't get the game as well as the older ones do. So, The yes. mastery of the game. Yeah, yeah. So, or I'll think, oh, gosh, I could have looked up two people card games that we could have filled our time with or... You know, like gone on a well. We've we've done some walking and hiking this this winter break. Yeah, you probably but, won't regret not hiking enough. Yeah, but you know, I, I go back and I think, how could we have used our time better? Yeah, more productively, more bonding, more memories, um, that sort of thing. I feel like I don't necessarily most of the time don't feel bad about the way I act. It's the way I didn't act. That's like more time cleaning and prepping the house for your parents' visit. I'm like, I wish I could have been like, oh well. Yeah. You know, we that, got most of it clean, and you know, I didn't need to deep clean the oven. Yeah. Know. Nobody's gonna care about that, right? That's actually the second thing on my list of common emotions that we feel after the holidays. Sort of ties in anyway. I think there's a this debate between you know I had this downtime for many people, not for all. But for many people, this is a slower period of time at work. You've either got some time off or just the pace, is, pace of play is different. And so people, I think, have regrets. I, I'm one of them that I didn't enjoy the downtime enough. I didn't take enough full downtime. I didn't just sit and stare at the damn tree, the dead tree, and work on breathing and just do nothing enough. And then the converse of that is, oh, I was too lazy over the holidays. I could have done X, Y, and Z. It was. A, it would have been a great time to paint the kitchen, because not much was going on. And I didn't oh my God, take are you that reading time my to mind? paint the kitchen. I actually thought, gosh, why didn't I between Thanksgiving and Christmas break paint our bathroom? It's small, but our upstairs bathroom. I'm like, oh, it needs painting. And I'm also like a little bit of a repurposer. And we had some great leftover color from a bedroom once, and I was like, that would be a nice change of pace. It won't take long. I can do it, but my days just filled up. Yeah. Also, the bathroom would be out of commission, so I couldn't do it while all six of you, us were at home. You run like a crazy woman. I, I've got this thing in my head about Sundays. Sunday afternoons, we should all be relaxing. We should be getting ready for the coming week. And you are terrible at it. I mean, you're just terrible Folding at it. Folding laundry and watching, period. Uh, <laughs> yeah, TV but then doesn't you, count. you also want a nice family dinner on Sundays, and guess what? I don't care as much about that as you do, and you're a better cook than me. So you also spend a couple hours in the kitchen on Sundays. So I'm not trying to drag you over the coals, but you go coals, but you go and go and go. Do you ever have regrets that you didn't spend enough downtime just being down? Um, no, because I don't think about it. Okay, I want you to work on that. I want you to have regret, <laughs> regrets about not a, being lazy. That's enough. only been. For three or four years, you've said that. So I, if I'm not regretful about it, I don't know how I'm going to work on it. I'm just I do, kidding, of I do, But I do find bits and time, 
like to relax. So it's not like I'm constantly. Well, you're a good sleeper in her. Yeah, like this morning. Yeah. I you're... slept in good. You got out of bed and I like took over. Yeah, I, I'm a terrible sleeper in her. Uh, I can sometimes get back to sleep after getting up and vexing and snorting about something for an mm-hmm. hour. But but not often. You're a very good sleeper in her. So I guess that's where you get your extra downtime. Other things on the list of common emotions after the holidays. You know, those family squabbles. We want to spend time with family. We look forward to spending time with family. And enjoy. I enjoy spending time with family. But when you put that the same people in that proximity to each other, people that know each other so well, know each other's weak points, mm. then there tend to be arguments that you know you don't experience when everyone's off doing their own thing. Or and then you throw in the relatives that join from a distance that yeah, you don't see often. Absolutely. And I appreciate someone in one of our calls had mentioned appreciates each other's uniqueness. Yeah. And I'm really trying to embrace that. But some uniqueness is, you know, drives me batty. Yeah. So I think that the squabbling that happens between the siblings, I guess, is better than them just ignoring each other, like our children. But when you add in... Person- children don't ignore each other. They squabble. I know. I said they squabble, oh. and it's better than That's ignoring better each than other. other. Yes. Another example I have a friend who has children- adult children now that said they the two brothers out of the three, just basically ignored each other. Yeah, that And she said, I would rather them have been squabbling and arguing because that at least shows they're paying attention and has interest. Yeah. I don't know which is better, but when you throw in someone else that's maybe another adult, I feel like that really gets me high anxiety of anticipating. Like when, you know, when they're in my house and, and they're behaving their normal way, and doing things their normal way without ever considering how it's disruptive to maybe the rest of our household. Because I feel like when I go to their house, I don't come in and just take over. Yeah, well... But I don't want them to feel like they can't do things either. So it's this weird balance of emotions that I'm dealing with, this anxiety and stress. And I I don't know, I can see that being like the downside of maybe why someone would relapse, whether it's emotional or alcohol. I mean, I feel like you and I have gotten into arguments after we've had visits, not only with visits with our family, extended family, but afterwards, because like there's all these emotions and this tenseness and this like just trying to be on your best behavior and then you kind of let it down and then you're like, ah, fuck it. You pissed me off, Matt. You didn't load the dishwasher right. And I had a week of someone loading the dishwasher wrong, you know, even though you're the dish. But that's my example. Yeah, I understand. You know, and you're just like, I've had enough. That that extended family dynamic fascinates me. I think about it a lot. I've I've listened to people talk about it, like the experts. And you're right. I think I think what's really fascinating about it is this is our family. This is the place where we sh- extended family. This is the place where we should be the most comfortable, just being our natural selves. But we tend to want to put our best foot forward and. Sh- you know, show that we're doing well and that things are fine and that we're mentally stable and that we're well balanced. Because we're and being pleasers and we want to make them happy. But then they should also be on the receiving end, just be less judgmental. We shouldn't have to feel like we're being judged or Well or and I think it like I think it goes both ways, don't you? I mean I think I think we feel judged, but we also tend to I'm not saying every human does this, but we tend to be judgy too. And it doesn't even 
It's not even on purpose. We can just be asking questions. One of the one of the radio shows that I listened to, I was on a long drive, and it was a radio psychologist, and uh, you know, like Fraser, I'm listening, was one of those people, <laughs> and I I thought it was fascinating. This person was talking about how you see you and your sister, your adult sister, you don't live in the same town anymore. You text and talk infrequently, and then you get together, and you've got a year's worth of questions to ask each other, and those questions, even if they're innocent. They, some of them sound judgmental. I'm not using you as a specific example, but that happens. We, oh, you know, are you seeing somebody? Because I know that divorce was hard or or whatever. What are, what are the kids' activities? Well, if you don't come up with enough good activities for the kids, then you feel like you're being judged because you're not a good enough parent. And it's it's so ironic that it's the people with whom we should feel the most comfort that make us feel the least comforted. And a lot of it is judgment and some of it's intentional. I mean, certainly there are people out there that are just judgy people, but some of it isn't. It's just, I haven't seen you in a while. I'm catching up. And your answers to my questions make you feel bad. Yeah. My answers to your questions make me feel bad. Yeah. It's fascinating. It is. It really is. But you're right. That judgmentalness in in extended family situations that, you know, most of us, most of the people listening to this podcast have just come through some situation like that. Also on my list of common emotions after the holidays, beating ourselves up about weight gain. You know, I uh, I think I made a little progress this holiday. I think you made a lot because you didn't go throwing everything out of our pantry. <laughs> it's stockpiled. Yeah, I've had some pretty uh, visceral reactions in the past. I, but, I don't think you But even food, just but... internally, like... You know, I get in the flow of the holidays and it just feels so warm and cozy to eat whatever I can reach out and grab (laughs) (laughs) and not give a shit and then traditionally feel a lot of regret about that later. Look, I know what's going to happen. I know spring's going to come and I'm going to get real active with my job coaching soccer and I'm going to drop five pounds. It's not like I gained 40 pounds. Mm -hmm. You know, I gained five here and I lose five there. And the fact that I sit I traditionally beat myself up about that is really disturbing. And I'm I still beat myself up a little this year, but not not as bad. Well, I think because you recognized and you talked to me about it, and you recognized like you were doing it. You kind of recognized why you were doing it, but then you also recognized that once the holidays have passed, and I mean basically tomorrow, January third, we kind of go back into our regular routines of work, and the kids are back in school. They're you know. So you know you're going to go back into your healthier eating habit routines. Yeah. You know, it's not like the food. I mean, I did overbuy some crackers because they was like, you know, two for one or whatever. But those are like. I love the sale. That's for sure. (laughs) I'm a gatherer. Um, But those are going to be put away and they'll be doled out. Whereas like they were just kind of all sitting out for charcuterie boards that we had because we had like family little activities and we just like. Our kids like appetizers and things. Who doesn't? So we do kind of, that's our holiday kind of meals a little bit. Yeah. So It's like being <laughs> on an all-inclusive they... cruise and yeah. just eating your way through a just week or so. Just little, like, you know, grazing boards, I think, would be a good way to describe what goes yeah. on. Except we did have a lot of salads this time because I hit a deal on some bag salad. Somehow the salad is ineffective <laughs> when you top it off with... The way we did, yeah, with meat and cheese, meat and, and cheese. then sweets, yeah. But 
but you know, we're joking about it, and I think that's good because that's another common trigger, another common emotion that people feel after the holidays. You know, if it is going to be, you know, if if you live twelve months like that, you're probably not going to live very long, and it's going to have a a more lasting, long term impact. But if you if you indulge a little bit on Christmas week or New Year's week or whatever your deal is, and then get back to the plan. Uh, you know, I, I think beating ourselves up about it is just wasted effort. Well, and I think you just have to, like I was mentioning, you kind of recognized it and you talked about it and you understood that I think that people who have are coping or early, you know, sobriety, there is food is an emotional comfort mm-hmm. and there needs to be something else you can lean on a little bit while you're struggling, but know that getting back into the healthy habits yeah. and getting back into your regular routine, again, it can be an emotional relapse or an alcoholic relapse. You can kind of avoid that by kind of remi- reminding yourself or talking it out with your loved one or a friend that, yeah, it's a struggle and right now I'm doing some emotional eating and I'm doing a little bit extra, but I know I'm going to... Like, get back into my normal habits, my regular times, no holidays, no family, and then I can reset. Absolutely. So kind of keeping that in the forefront rather than going down the dark hole of beating yourself up. Yeah. The last thing on my list of common emotions we feel after the holidays, wishing it wasn't over. It's so funny because we just talked all about this stuff. I, You know, I wish I had talked to my kids differently. I wish I had done more, you know, playing games instead of sitting around. I wish I had sat around more instead of playing games. Um, I, I wish the family squabbles hadn't been there. I wish I hadn't eaten the way I did. All of these things are negative, but then a lot of us also look back and say, even though that was a struggle and even though that was hard, there's a little bit of mixed emotions there. And I like Christmas and I wish it was the start of Christmas again. Mm-hmm. It's hard and stressful but it's it's also there's also a lot of joy surrounding it. So for some of us, there's also I wish it wasn't over because it's January. It's January, <laughs> and in this part of the world, that's a long one. Thirty-one days of January. So the so all of these things that we've talked about, the thing that they all have in common is they all have a negative impact on our self-esteem. And as you and I have shared many times, I think the single biggest factor for recovery and addiction prevention is having good self-esteem, healthy self-esteem. So the holidays are just like taking a, you know, a saw to our self-esteem. It's it's really really difficult. You're looking at me kind of quizzically. You don't agree? A saw because it cuts through your self-esteem? Yeah. Okay. A, a bushwhacker. I don't know. A sledgehammer. Yeah. Bad just, Bad analogy. Just what Just it destroys is. our self-esteem in so many different ways. <clears throat> we go to the party. We eat the food. We enjoy the company. And then we feel bad about it. Like, what's that all about? Yeah. You know? That's not okay. So, how does this all relate to what I was talking about earlier? with the times that I relapsed a few days later after events. You know, the whole month of December is one big event, regardless of what your religious practice is, what you celebrate, uh, if you celebrate at all. Certainly there are people that don't. If you celebrate at all, the month of December is just, it's great, it's glorious, but 
there's a huge pitfall that a lot of people fall into. So even if you get through sober, if you're new to this idea of sobriety, you know, I'm here to say, not what you want to hear, but I'm here to say, here comes the hard part. January is even harder than December because there's nothing to anticipate. You're full of these self-esteem zapping regrets and you got to find a way to, to get through. Wow, that's uplifting. Well, let's be uplifting. Let's talk <laughs> about the ways to get through. You know, you and I have already been laughing at all the the gym membership and the Peloton and the Peloton exercise machines. Oh, yeah, you can rent your Peloton now. You can rent now. your Peloton now. It's probably, probably smart of them because those things are expensive, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, all of that is hitting us in the face. And you, you can kind of laugh and scoff at that, but they advertise this time of year for a reason. Mm-hmm. People are looking for something to feel better about themselves. Addiction or no addiction, people are looking for something to help them feel better about themselves. And I don't think you've got to spend a few grand on a Peloton or however much a gym membership costs. But, but there's definitely some things that we can do to help avoid that relapse, whether it's an alcohol relapse or, like you said, an emotional relapse in January coming off the holidays. Make a nutrition plan. Um, when, and I say nutrition plan very specifically as opposed to diet because a nutrition plan is more long-term. I think it's more healthy. We're not just trying to cut weight. <clears throat> I think it's important, in fact, that the nutrition plan not be related to weight loss. We know that most of us are going to ebb and flow a little bit as we go through the seasons. And December is the time to put a little on. And if, if we just go back to our normal routine, we're going to naturally um, drop a lot of that in the coming months. So the nutrition plan shouldn't be a reaction to those negative feelings about, oh, I ate, I ate too much you know, pumpkin pie and I ate too many sugar cookies. It should be, hey, I want to work on my mental health. Because one of the things that you and I have learned through this recovery process, and just learned as science has changed and started to talk about this in the last few years, is weight is way more related to mental health than it is physical health. I remember when you and I were young and newly married, I ran like three miles every day, and then I'd come home from running, and I'd pour a vodka and eat Doritos and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't lose the weight. It had nothing to do with running. It had to do with the dietary choices I mm-hmm. was making. So um, when we talk about a nutrition plan, it it should be targeted at our mental health as, and the physical health part will just kind of follow. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So you're saying like finding foods that fit you. Yeah. And I don't know, sometimes people start out the new year or close to the new year or maybe the end of the year because they're using their savings plans to get their annual checkup. So maybe spend a little extra money and do blood work and see because like, there are people that are deficient in some minerals and um, amino acids and things like that that they can pick up. So maybe it's something even if it's like that because that will help your mood. I remember like... Mood, good point. Yeah. It's all about mood. Yeah, I remember... A lot of the time, like, I don't know, years ago I heard about how avocados were a mood-lifting food. So whenever there was, like, tension, and especially, I I mean, I know in the beginning of this set of sobriety, I was kind of done with you and over it, and I was distant. But 
I did still care and pay attention. But we would have, like, guacamole or avocado, you know, on our meals. Because I knew if you were struggling, and avocados this time of the year are pretty inexpensive because it's their season. So it's things like that that you can even incorporate. And, like, what are healthy, good mood foods. Yeah, absolutely. To incorporate. Or even, I think, because I like to cook, it would be a fun idea to add in a new vegetable every week to the grocery list, something you've never done, or using it in a different way just to incorporate more vegetables in. And if you have younger kids, it might entice them. Like our kids, like we grew up with boiled Brussels sprouts. Yuck. Or they would be with the roasted chicken and they would be all mush. You know, and we, several years ago, just started roasting them, and our kids love Brussels sprouts. Yeah. So just doing things that are a little bit different. Yeah. And doing some investigating. I, you know. I know this time of year, I tend to eat more salads and lots of protein, lots of healthy proteins, and it just makes me feel good. Nothing about going on a cabbage soup diet so I can lose my five pounds of cookie weight would make me feel good mentally and emotionally. Yeah, you get that jolt of, of of happy hormones when you look at the scale in the morning, maybe. But the rest of the day, it it does it's not you sustainable. Feel depleted, yeah, you feel depleted. It's you know you're just trying to reach some goal, and then you're going to go back to normal, whatever normal is. Adjusting to a nutrition plan that is long term and sustainable, that's going to make you feel good. And when you feel good, you don't have the fuck it moments, whether that's alcohol saying I'm going to give in and relapse or I'm going to give in and eat a bunch of sweets because I don't feel good about myself. When you feel that I can't emphasize enough how important self-esteem is to avoiding both addiction relapse and also avoiding making decisions that you'll regret nutritionally. So if we eat the right stuff and we feel good, then we won't eat the stuff that we don't want to eat in January as we're getting ready for bathing suit season. I know that's <laughs> what it's all about for you, Sherry. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, getting outside and getting exercise. Again, I, I think I can't emphasize enough how important it is for the exercise not to be targeting weight loss. Um, and maybe I shouldn't be so definitive about this. If you really want to lose weight and you really want to exercise and and have a dietary change to do that, that's fine. But when it comes to battling for your sobriety and trying to avoid relapse, the mentality can't be about, I'm just trying to cut weight. The mentality has to be, I understand the connection between my physical health and my mental health. And nothing's more important than my mental health because my mental health is what's going to keep me sober. So I'm going to exercise. I I don't know. I don't remember when it happened. It was long enough ago for me that I don't really remember. But I made some kind of mental shift where I listen to music when I run. Usually, sometimes I listen to a podcast, but I usually listen to music. And I'm not trying to set some new personal goal running-wise. I know you're laughing because you like to talk about how slow I run. Um, And I am not trying to solve all the problems of the world. I am just trying to listen to the Foo Fighters and enjoy myself and... I do. I love running now. It is it is a joyous occasion for me. Now, do I feel good because I did it? Because I know it's healthy for me? Yeah. But way more than that, I feel good because my brain needed to be outside. It needed fresh air. It needed to look around and see things besides a computer screen. 
And when I get back from a run, I just feel good and it is completely unrelated to weight loss. And that is something that shifted in me some years ago because I used to only, I used to hate running and it was drudgery and I only did it because I was trying to lose weight. And I think the majority of people exercise because they're trying to lose weight. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, you know, at this time of year when people are most uh, getting back into exercise, if you can make that mental shift and not be targeting your belt line and instead be targeting what's going on in the old cranium, it can it can work wonders because you know then dropping a few pounds becomes a side effect of feeling good and doing the exercise because you're enjoying it. And if running's not your thing, then maybe it's the elliptical or maybe it's a walk in the park or maybe you like to ride your bike. Just don't like I just hate it when I hear these quote unquote experts saying, "Oh, you need to do you know this this day, and then the next day needs to be this because your goal is." Uh, six pack abs or your goal is some kind of reaching some cardio level thing I mean I mean fine if that's your gig that's your gig but if if your gig is mental health then the exercise needs to be something you look forward to and you want to do what do you most look forward to exercise wise Sherry um taking walks with me and holding my hand (laughs) (laughs) I guess not I do like walking with um, you know, walking with a friend. Yeah. And I, we live where we have access to, um, Foothill Mountains and I really enjoy some, like, easier winter hikes or snowshoeing. Um, so I, I do like that. If I'm staying here local, I do like to go to the gym and listen to music and be on the elliptical. Yeah. That's my favorite. You like music and elliptical. Yeah. I like that's it. It's my favorite. I like bicycling outside, but sometimes the ice patches and Yeah. I don't I'm a, I'm a wimp when it comes to cold. So. It can get scary. And I'm cold, and I don't like cold wind in my face. Find your jam and do it. Get outside. I know it's cold, it's January. Even if you don't do your exercise outside, walk around the block. Like I have been amazed now that I pay attention to how I'm feeling <clears> and I'm not self medicating with alcohol. I've been amazed how much five minutes outside can impact me. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really something. It's really remarkable. So if you tend to be a cold hater, like a lot of people are, bundle up buttercup and go walk around the block. See what that does for you. Socializing, so important. You know, we go through, especially if you tend to be introverted, December can be a challenge. All the socializing, and then we just lock down in our little hubby holes in January and don't interact with the world. Oh, by the way, when I talk about socializing, social media doesn't count. In fact, social media is, does more damage than good to us. So find a way to socialize in January um, live. In person is great, but even if it's over Zoom, I mean, I, I, we, you and I do a ton of Zoom. And just interacting with people and seeing their faces and seeing their facial expressions and hearing them react to what I'm saying and me react to what they're saying, that that personal face-to-face interaction is so good for the soul. So uh, if there's a month when that's important, probably January is the one because we're overwhelmed from having done it in December and a lot of us want to shut down. And guess what happens when we shut down and we are alcoholics in early sobriety, Sherry? 
Relapse. Relapse. We want to avoid that. Um, it's a great time to take up one of these practices that I am intrigued by and I love the idea of and I never seem to do myself, but maybe I will this January. Things like meditation, breath work, yoga, just a, a reading practice. I don't read like I used to. And I can easily make the excuse that I don't have time or I don't find the time. But, you know, excuses like that are just a matter of prioritize, priorities. If I would prioritize reading, I'd find the time and something else would go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So, um, great time of year to work on one of those practices. Are you, you like yoga. You don't do it much though, right? Yeah, I like yoga and Pilates. Now that... Uh... Our, our college-age son has moved back into his room. I've lost my oh, little right. yoga and Pilates studio. You used to go down but, there. That's yeah, right. Um, doing it in our kind of sort of closet that opens up. I don't have much space. But I, uh, I, I traded in yoga a little bit more for Pilates, but I do try to do a 15-minute stretch every morning. And that's great, too. Yeah. You get a benefit a from late. that, right? Uh-huh. Some people think if you're not dedicating an hour to your practice, same thing, you know, we talk to a lot of people who are experts in meditation and breath work and they say listen three minutes is great mm -hmm. five minutes and you're a superstar you don't have to meditate for an hour i think people look at that and, and think oh that's so daunting i couldn't ever sit still for that long well you don't have to yeah so i i just just interacted last week with someone that was talking about how most humans we don't breathe the way we were designed because of the way we've let our nervous system just constrict us into too much time spent in fight or flight mode. And certainly if you are the loved one of an alcoholic or an alcoholic, that uh, characterization fits for you probably. So we don't breathe deeply enough. And guess what happens when we don't breathe deeply enough? We don't get enough oxygen to yeah. our bodies. And guess brain. what? That's pretty important. Yeah. So, so... If you think of breath work and you're like, well, I don't want to do meditative breathing for half an hour, 45, then don't do it for five minutes and your body will start to feel the benefits of the increased oxygen and, and your body will start to move that direction. We are learning creatures, even with the parts of our brain that are subconscious. And so if you spent some, just a few intentional minutes breathing every day, your body will start to morph that way and your breath your breaths will get better and more oxygen flow. And the better our brain is operating, the less likely we are to relapse. It all ties together. Love it when a plan comes together. Last thing on my list of things that we can do in a positive way here in January, make a list of your holiday accomplishments that you're proud of. It's so easy. We are naturally inclined as humans to beat ourselves up for stuff. So it's so easy to think about our squabbling kids or the things we wish we had done differently, or that present that we bought that was wrong and we should have bought the other one, or, or, or all that cake we ate. It's so easy to remember that and beat ourselves up, but it would be great to journal, to, to write down so that it's tangible, it's visible, it's something that you own, a list of things about the holidays that you're proud of, the interactions that you got right, the card you got from somebody you haven't talked to in 10 years, stuff like that. And, you know, I am really thankful. You and I took our kids. We tried to go ice skating over the week between Christmas and, and New Year's. And 
like a lot of things, right, this time of year, the place we went was just so incredibly busy that it didn't work out. And so rather than sulk and get back in the car and be sad that we, you know, didn't get there early enough or whatever, we took a little sidewalk and found a different part of the, this was an outdoor ice game, we found a different part of the lake that someone had cleared for a hockey rink. And the six of us did a little, you know, we had two pairs of skates, so we traded <laughs> we off. We did trade skates and- but we had a great time. Yeah, it was We had fun. a great time. Just was, doing our own thing. It was very enlightening. I'm glad we did not spend the $25 because there were some we children that would have not, that would have benefited from being in an indoor rink with a handle and this was outdoor. And a Zamboni. Yeah. And a Zamboni. Lakes don't have Zambonis, yeah, so it's so, pretty rough. So it was kind of, I think it was a nice reset for those that got a little grumpy and disappointed about not being able to do the ice skating and we'll go in January when it's. You know, but that would definitely go on my list of successes because we, you know, we shifted gears and made plan our own B fun. was better than plan A probably would have been. We made our own fun. We made our own fun and topped it off with hot chocolate. So make that list. Be proud of yourself. If If you go through the world, if you go through your life with a conscious understanding of how important self-esteem is, you'll start to find it places. That, that has been my experience. So... Again, not arrogance. I'm not trying to be boastful. But if I know that me feeling good about myself is the key to so much mental health-wise, and certainly it's the key to avoiding relapse, then I I look for it in places that I have in the past not necessarily looked for it. So maybe that can be something you can do too. Not you specifically, Sherry. I know you do it. You feel pretty good about yourself, don't you? Yeah. Most of the time? Yeah. Good. We should. You should be very proud of yourself. I don't have a whole lot of regrets when I eat a slice of chocolate cake. In fact, you said that, and now I'm like, hmm. I'd like to have some chocolate cake. I'd like to have some chocolate cake and then go to the elliptical. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, We're ready for you at ShoutSobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.